The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Some of you know that William Cooper in the 1700s battled severe depression and even suicidal despair at times, but he wrote some of the hymns that we sing, like there is a fountain filled with blood, and he wrote those words that we sang earlier, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. And that's what we're going to see today in the book of Exodus, chapter 14, at the Red Sea. It was mysterious the way of God that had brought them there and the army is approaching and they don't know where they're going or what's happening, but they're about to see one of the greatest wonders that God ever performed as God is going to move the, the waters so that Israel, their footsteps can follow through the sea. And we're going to follow along in Exodus chapter 14. But there's, there's mystery also in this story in the mysterious ways of God. Like, why did it take God so long to take his people out of Egypt? It was more than 400 years of slavery. And then we, even when he comes to deliver them, there's, there's been so much now for 13 chapters till we get to chapter 14. Or we might wonder, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let them go sooner? Why was there 10 plagues? Surely God could have brought them out with much less than that. And, And I think the answer to all that is that God's purpose is not only or mainly to get Israel out. He could have gotten them out in a number of ways. He could have just done some sort of a mind trick, you know, with Pharaoh. These are not the slaves who should be working for you. You should let them go now. And he just nods like, yes, these, I will let these slaves go. Just move along now. But that's not what he does. And this is not like something you see in movies. God is going to bring the full force of the plagues on the empire of Egypt for another purpose. And it's not primarily or ultimately about just getting his nation out. It is about getting his name out to the world. That's what he says in Exodus nine sixteen, kind of the mission statement for the book and why Pharaoh had been raised up and was still alive. He says that my name will be proclaimed to all the earth. And he's going to show his name, that means his his nature, his character, not just as Savior, but also as Creator, as Judge. He's going to do all this to show his glory as well as his mercy in judgment here in this chapter to, to get his name out to all the earth. And, and that language is also echoed by Jesus in, in Luke 24. He says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the earth or to all the nations, or, or other parts of Scripture talk about declaring His glory among the nations. And so this is where this is all going. Philippians 2, also in the New Testament, says that at that name, every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where all of this is going. God is going to get glory, and even His enemies are going to know, they're going to confess 
that he is Lord, who he is. That's the big point of the passage. That's the big point of Exodus. We might say that is the point of the universe as well and all of history as well. Here's how one writer summarized the whole message of the Bible, book by book. It is God's glory in saving through judgment. It's about God being glorified in salvation through judgment. And this is what we're going to see in Exodus 14 at the sea. Egypt's army has them surrounded. As we saw last time, they have them trapped at the sea. There's nowhere for them to go. And look at Exodus 14. And verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. And I will harden the hearts of Pharaoh so that they shall go in after them. Here's, here's God now coming to that purpose statement again. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's his name, Yahweh. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said... Let us flee from before Israel for the Lord, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. For the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people of Israel feared 
the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And as we see God's great power here, that's the right response, that we would fear, that we would see, that we would believe in this Lord as well. The late James Montgomery Boyce said, this part of the book of Exodus is the very heart of the book of Exodus. He says, you could argue it is the very heart of the whole Old Testament. The Red Sea is extremely important And in fact, this crossing is mentioned many more times in the Old Testament than even the Passover, which is a hugely important event. This event is epic in the fullest sense of the word. And what I want to do is look at this passage under three headings as it progresses. And the first is looking backward and then going forward and then turning upward. Looking backward, we need to remember the Lord Going forward, we need to trust the Lord. And then turning upward, we need to glorify the Lord. But we need to start with the context of this story and history. In verses 10 through 12, Israel is, is looking backward in fear. We looked at that last time. They weren't remembering God and what He had just done for them. But we can, we can easily, quickly forget God's work as well, what He's done But Moses has to tell them in verse 13 to to fear not, to stand firm, see your salvation. They're fearful saints. But what they dread is is about to, to open with mercy on their head. And Moses is writing this so that his readers also later would remember God as they look back as well. And Egypt also needed to know, in fact, God said, they would, they would know that He is God. They would know that their gods did not create the world. They would know that their God, Pharaoh, did not actually control order like He claimed to. In fact, Moses also wrote Genesis 1 from our scripture reading earlier. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, and the Spirit of God the, the Ruach is the word there, was moving over the surface of the waters. Now we have that same word, Ruach, which is spirit or wind. It's moving over the waters again, but this time he's moving the waters for his people. And in verse 20, God separates light from darkness. In fact, there's this dividing, uh, this division, this separation where there's light to the Israelites, but it's darkness to the Egyptians, and they can't pass. It's like, you will go no further. You will not pass, and, and it's darkness, and there's confusion on the Egyptian side, but there's light on the other side. The, the let there be light is only for Israel, for his people, and there's evening and there's morning again like the first day. And remember the second day of, God, of God's creation, he said, let there be a, a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. And, and here we have again God dividing the waters of the Red Sea from the waters for his people. There's this firm wall that he has. 
And then on day three of creation, God said, let the waters be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear, dry ground. It's the same language here. And and he says the waters he called seas and the dry land he called earth. The the same God, the only God, is again gathering the waters of the sea into its place and he's letting dry land appear for his people. And they saw that it was good for them to, to walk on. But Egypt's later going to see it's not good for them. God spoke ten times in Genesis 1. And it may be no coincidence that he spoke ten plagues again on Egypt, but it's like he's reversing creation. Even the first plague in chapter 7 lasted seven full days. Maybe as a to recall God's creation week. And and the plagues actually move, if you study them, they move from water to land to sea creatures to flying things to beasts. And then finally the plagues come on man. It's the reverse of Genesis 1. Plants and animals are taken out and, and the light of the sun is even taken out for three days in those plagues on Egypt. In the same order as creation, in those big categories, God is plaguing water, land, and sky. But it's with death now instead of life. It's like he's turning back creation on Egypt. And even the language of those swarming creatures, let the seas team, let the skies team with creatures, it's the same language used in the plagues. There's swarms of, of these creatures coming upon Egypt And God's point to Egypt in all of that is you need to know that I am the creator. It's not your myths. It's not any of those other gods that you worship. I am Yahweh. You will know who I am. You are meeting your maker, is what he's saying. I am the creator. I am in control, God is saying. I am the one who orders all things, not your gods, certainly not Pharaoh. I am God and you are not That's his message to Egypt. But Moses also at the same time has a point for Israel with this language. We need to remember the Lord, the Almighty, the the King of creation. This is the same God who is with his people. As as you look backward, you need to remember the mighty power of God. The the power that makes the oceans rise is the same power that is making a way through the sea. And it makes the way of salvation for God's people. He makes light where there is darkness for his people. And Psalm 77 says one of the key truths in distress or trouble, Psalm 77 says we need to remember the past. Read the first part of Psalm 77, the despair, the, the, the doubt, the depression, the struggle that he goes through. But then he says, I will remember what God has done. And he brings up the Red Sea crossing in particular to remind himself, this is our redeemer. The point for all God's people is remember your savior is also the the sovereign creator and sustainer and impossibility is, is his specialty. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And if you're a young person in particular, God's word says to you, remember your creator in the days of your youth. 
But for us who are older as well, Isaiah says this, Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, I will carry you, and I will save, remember this, and stand firm. That's the same thing Exodus 14 says. Stand firm, recall to mind, remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. And Isaiah says this to this God, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. That was you. You alone could do that. Only God can do that. Here, that path through the sea, Moses calls in verse 20 and 21, dry land and dry ground. And and that word for dry means withered. It means without moisture. It's not just drained. It is desert dry is the term here, it's parched and it is hard. It is not, this is not some, some muddy, marshy land. In fact, this is the, the word for after the flood when God dried the land so it was okay for them to, to walk on again. This is the word. It was dry land. And, and, and remember, God saved Noah and his family in an ark. And there were walls on on all sides, all around them, to protect them from the water. Everyone else is being judged, and they're drowning around them, but God is saving his people through judgment, and he is preserving them in the ark. The enemies drown, but God, the creator, is also the savior of his people through judgment, and it's for his glory. And that word ark that Noah and his family was saved from, it's the same word used for Moses when he was a baby, that wooden basket or box that he was put in. It's actually ark is the same word, only two places where it's used. And there's a a reference there, a connection there. There's like a, a miniature version of that now. Again, God's chosen one, the one he is saving through judgment while others are drowning around him is protected in this ark and he's protected on, on all sides so that the water does not drown him. And so we see this with God's people in the past, with Noah and his family, and then Moses, who is going to lead them out. And it's like God's signature move, if you will, delivering his people from death all around them. He's going to deliver his people again, and from watery death in particular. Moses wants them to remember these things as they look back. He writes and he uses the words that he does that they will remember these things. And even as he wrote his own story in Exodus chapter 2, this is later in life he wrote this, but Miriam, it says, watched her brother among the reeds by the river bank. Those are the same terms. They're not used very often. Same terms that are used in Exodus 14 for the bank of this body of water and the word reed is actually used there, reed or, or red sea, depending on the uh, different scholars that you can read there. This may have been an arm of the modern Red Sea that, that ex- may be extended to a lake farther north in Bible times. There's the, the Gulf of Suez. Some of your Bibles have this in the map, and there's a couple different arms that come out from it that were connected to what's called the Red Sea today. But don't debate the geography and miss the theology Remember that God is judge and that he will deal with sin. Egypt drowned the sons of Israel. 
at that river earlier. Moses is using the same words for what God is doing now in drowning the sons of Egypt. Egypt had cast those Jewish boys in the water. Now God is casting Egypt's boys in the water, so to speak, using the same Hebrew root words. And God, not only thinking of the beginning of the story, but think of the plagues that they have just gone through. God had already saved Israel. He had protected Israel through the judgments all around them. In chapter 10, even it mentions there was an east wind that blew all night, and by morning, Egypt was covered with locusts. It was like an invading army of a horde of locusts, and then at the end of that plague, as God turns it away, he turns the strong wind on the locusts, and Exodus ten nineteen says, God drove them into the Red Sea, not a single locust was left. What do we have here? God is now doing to them what he had previewed in the plagues. He is driving the Egyptian armies and hordes into the Red Sea, and there's not a single soldier who's going to be left alive. This isn't deja vu. This is divine retribution. God is a God of exact justice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, says the Lord. And so we need to hear this as well. The New Testament uses that language and reminds us not to take matters into our own hands. Not to fight what God calls us to and what He takes responsibility for. God remembers sin. He will judge sin. He will take care of sin. That's bad news for sinners, which, which is us apart from grace. But there's good news, and that is that sin can be punished on the cross for believers in Christ. This language of remembering is used later in Scripture for God remembering our sins no more. The prophets say it's like he takes our sins and he casts them into the depths of the sea, never to rise again. That's what he does with our sins. If we truly confess and come to him, he takes them and he casts them into the depths of the sea. So this imagery is used later in Scripture of, of what God does with our greatest enemy of sin But for unbelievers who have done evil against you, do not repay evil, Scripture says. This is not our place. The battle doesn't belong to you. Let God handle it. Our job in this passage, what God says to his people here is they need patience. They need silence. And I think we also have to say you don't have to just take it and stay in a dangerous situation. God also calls to safety. Look at what he says here in verse 14 through Moses. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea. And so looking backward, we need to remember the Lord. But then moving forward, we need to trust the Lord. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 4, 
when they were again facing an, an army that seemed insurmountable. He says, do not be afraid of them, but remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And he says, our God will fight for us. We need to remember that. We sang, God, we trust in you. Even when fears are great and comforts are few, we need to trust in you, God. And we see this pattern in Israel that I see in my own heart and I see often looking back in fear. And then we see talking back. They start talking back to Moses when, when they're fearful. But Moses basically tells them, and it actually told himself, there comes a time where you need to shut up and get up and get going. Now, some of your families may not let you use the words shut up, so how about this? Stop talking and start walking. I mean, the time comes where we need to stop moving our lips and start moving our hips in obedience. We need to get going. We need to move forward. We need to stop complaining. And we need to start taking a step forward. We need to stop just talking about it and, and just analyzing it and all that. And, and we, need to, we need to move on. We need to not stay in the past We did not keep replaying the the past, this analysis, paralysis, and want to just keep going back instead of moving forward. We need to do the next thing, as Elizabeth Elliot would counsel. Do the next thing. Keep moving. Keep doing what God has said. I know there's people in this room that have deep hurts, from the past. And God knows that. God has great care for that. And also God in his love wants us to not stay there. We can't stay there. We can pray for healing. We can get help. But we need to go forward. We can't always resolve all things. And the point isn't to, to win or get others, win others to our point of view. What they were called to do here is to step out in faith and to not step into God's role. It says, he'll do the fighting for you. I think of Paul in Philippians 3, forgetting the things which are behind and pressing onward and upward to the call in Christ. We've got to keep doing that to run forward and to make progress. And there's some help for us in verse 19. When it says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. So there's this cloud, there's this angel, and it's coming, and it's it's separating, it's, it's coming between the enemies and God's people, and the word angel can be translated messenger. I think that might be a, a helpful way to think of this. In fact, keep a finger here and, and flip forward to chapter 23, because we've seen an angel before in Exodus. There was this burning bush where the, the angel or the messenger of the Lord appeared to Moses, but as you read the text there, it appears this isn't just a created being. This is, it says Yahweh appeared, or, or it says God appeared, describing the same thing. The angel, is it, is it an angel? Is it Yahweh? Is it, is it God? This isn't just a created 
messenger of God. This is a, a messenger who is God. He identifies himself as I am. That's how God speaks of himself in the Old Testament. That's how the Son of God speaks of himself in the, in the New Testament. And here in chapter 23, verse 20, look at it. Behold, I send an angel, or again, messenger, before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Whoever this messenger is has the power to forgive sin. And will not forgive the sins of of rebels. He is to be obeyed on the same level as God. He does what God does. He has the same name, Yahweh, in him. And he can forgive sin. Jesus said, who can forgive sin but God alone? And then Jesus forgives sin to show that he is God the Son. In Genesis, Jacob said this angel, messenger, redeemed. There's other places in Scripture that say that, that only God can redeem. And his son, I take this messenger here as the Messiah, as in a pre-incarnate meaning, but he hadn't taken on humanity yet. This is before God the Son became man. But go back to Exodus 14, and, and I mentioned this last time, but Jude says Jesus saved Israel from Egypt. And let me read from 1 Corinthians 10 again. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea And then he talks about spiritually how they had this provision and protection from behind. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's following behind them, and he's protecting them like a a rock and and providing for them. This This is not a mere created being here, not a mere cloud. This is the mighty Christ, before they knew him as that name, who was sustaining them. So look at Exodus 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was, or the messenger of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And this again is kind of language that you don't normally think of a cloud standing. This is language of a a person that would stand. Look at verse 24, and in the morning watch, verse 24, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down. And you say, wait, is it the angel who's in the pillar behind them, or is it the Lord? And the answer is yes. The angel of God, or the messenger of God, who is God. He's another person of God. And there's even a a hint in this language of looking down. Everywhere else in Scripture, when it talks about the Lord looking down, it's up from heaven, looking down here to earth. But here is another identified as the Lord down here on earth, also looking down in this pillar and in this messenger. And they didn't fully understand this or know how many persons there might be. But even the first chapter of the Bible, God created the heavens of the earth. The Spirit of God was moving. God said, let us make man in our image. Only God creates. There's, there's no other beings creating, but we understand there is one God. He's a father. He is a spirit. And he has this son who is the image of God, who is the creator and the savior. I like what St. Patrick wrote 
in the 400s A.D. I arise today through the mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the Creator. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ is, is there. He's around. He's, he's with his people. He's behind them. And he's before them. He's on the left and he's on the right. And, and we, need to, we can see that even more clearly than they understood. But Paul says that Christ was with them. And he says we need to not test Christ like they would later test him in the wilderness and complaining. Because Christ is with us to provide us our needs and we're not to complain against him. But even just to expand on this a little bit more, Isaiah 52 says to believers in Messiah, which is just the Old Testament term for Christ, the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rear guard. So he's before you, he's also your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Kings shall shut their mouths on account of him. And the first king to do that is the king of Egypt here. But Isaiah 53 goes on to talk about this Messiah, this Christ would be like a lamb, like the lamb of Exodus. He would redeem his people. This is all Exodus language. And then right before that, Isaiah 52 uses this phrase from Exodus, all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation. That's the word Yeshua in Hebrew from Exodus 14. But it's not just one nation. All nations are going to see this not just so Israel will know or Egypt will know, it's so the nations will know this salvation. That's the noun behind the name Jesus. Look at Exodus 14, 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation. See the Yeshua. Israel couldn't see Jesus like we can yet, but Yeshua, and even personified through the second person of the Trinity, is working for them and is fighting for them. So we might say, onward Jewish soldiers. God will fight your war. In the cloud is Jesus, both behind and before Egypt. See, he's fighting. You'll die in the sea. God will win the battle. Israel, on to victory. This one that we call Jesus grew up in Galilee, being called Yeshua in Hebrew or Aramaic by the Jews there. And they would later see that this is no normal person. In fact, they would ask, what manner of man is this? That even the waves and the sea obey him. Even the wind obeys him. He just says, peace be still. And it stops. He, he makes it so we can walk on water. He has the power to, to rebuke and move back water. Who is this? And it says they feared. Who is this? This is the Exodus 14 God in that carpenter of Galilee. He's no mere man. He's no mere messenger. He is the master of the waves and he is the mighty salvation of God. I need to ask, is he your master? Is he your salvation? Even before moving on from this point, do you fear him? 
Do you obey this Jesus? If not, turn from your sin. Turn to him. Trust in him. Jesus took God's judgment on himself, on the cross, so that those who believe can be saved through judgment, all to his Father's glory. The right response is at the end of this chapter. See God's power. Fear the Lord. Believe in the Savior. He doesn't just make a way to save Israel's life here. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's no other path to the Father. People think there's many paths to God. There's only one path. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus and what he's done. Israel was facing death, but they literally passed over to life on the other side. And Jesus Use similar language when he says, everyone who believes in me has passed from death into life. It's like this is a picture of, of salvation. It's not just like that. That's what this is. John said, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So one of the marks, one of the ways that you know you pass from death to life is not that you said a prayer when you were a young child at camp or at VBS or something like that. One of the ways you know that you've passed from death to life is that you love people that you would have never loved before. You love the brethren. You love being with the church. You, you love God's people. If you want to be with God's people, you know your need for God's people. It's one of the marks of those who have passed from death to life. If you don't love Christians and if you don't love the church, you're still in darkness. You're on the losing side. But the Lord in his mighty power and grace is calling to you to come, to believe in him, to trust in him, to turn from your sin. He has the power to save you and to change you even this very day. And as a believer, our battle cry is the battle belongs to who? To the Lord. We can't in our own strength confide or we're losing. We need the, the right man on our side. Luther said, Christ Jesus, it is he. And he will win the battle. We've got to believe that. In fact, he has won it at the cross, but the ultimate victory is still to come. We need to walk in victory. And even the enemies of God's people see it here. Look at verse 25, middle of verse 25. The Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Remember God said, I'm going to be glorified, and the Egyptians are going to know that I am Yahweh. Now they say, we need to get out of here. Yahweh is fighting us. We can't, we don't stand a chance. This is Yahweh. The wheels are coming off, literally. The most elite chariots Imagine all these tanks in our day coming into a, a village, but then all of them malfunction at the same time, and they're stuck, and then the, the people in the tank start jumping out and running away as fast as they can. That's what's happening here. And it's, it's interesting, in the middle of verse 27, it says, the Egyptians fled into the water. 
They fled into the water. It's like they, they want to get away from this Lord. I think of in Revelation where they would rather have rocks fall on them than to face the wrath of the Lord on his throne. And God throws them into the water. I think of that lyric where Satan's hosts and armies also will flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Christ, I love this line, Christ the royal master leads against the foe. And so trusting him forward into battle, we can go. Moving forward, trust the Lord. And thirdly and finally and briefly, turning upward, glorify the Lord. Israel turned backwards and it was hopeless. But this ends turning upward in the hope of glory. We need to stop looking down. We need to stop looking around. Moses and God is telling them, you need to lift up your head. We need to look up, as another psalm would say, to the king of glory. Verse 30 says, The Lord saved Israel that day by their great power, and they saw it. They saw their enemies defeated, and they feared. And they believed the Lord. Then look at chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. This turned them upward to praise. And we'll see that more in chapter 15 next week, but I think there's no greater note to end on than us turning upward to the Lord, to sing to our glorious and victorious Lord. This event was to forever help God's people to turn upward to his glory. They were turning inward earlier. They were turning against Moses. But God changes them. And the purpose of all of this, he says, is so that he will get glory. Through judgment, through saving, even in hardening Pharaoh and hardening the Egyptians, God had already said he was going to do this so that his name would be proclaimed to all the earth. This is what he says to the prophet Ezekiel. Chapter 20, verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. It wasn't that Israel deserved it. They were complaining at the Red Sea, but I delivered them through it for my great name. Isaiah 63 says, God brought them up out of the sea and he caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses. It says he divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. That's why he did it. To show his glorious power, also known as his name, despite Israel's sinfulness. He says in Isaiah 43, I am the Lord who opened a way through the waters. And then he says in that chapter, I will blot out your sins for my name's sake. He says there in Isaiah 43, these people whom I form for myself will declare my praise, and I'm going I'm to forgive their sins for my name's sake. It's not about the name of, of Israel, it's about my name's sake. Psalm 106, our fathers rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So they were rebelling at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. It says, then they believed his words and sang his praise. So this should change how we praise. This should change how we pray. It's not about us. It's about the glory of his name. Amen. And so what I want to do is I want to pray, and I'm going to pray from 
two passages in Scripture as we close here that apply these very truths, these very events in how we should pray. So bow with me as I pray from Nehemiah chapter 9. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You have heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. And your word says there, you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry ground and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. Therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, we pray. Thank you for that prayer in Nehemiah 9, Lord. And thank you for this prayer that Daniel prayed in Daniel 9. Our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, we have sinned for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive for your own sake. And for your people who are called by your name. Lord, I say amen to these prayers from your word. I pray that you would be glorified among us. That we would make much of you and your glory. I pray that you would forgive us and change us by your mighty power. Help us to see our sin and our need. Help us to be humble and not hardened. We pray all these things in the name that is above every name the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray in his name to your glory. Amen.